You're listening to Greater L.A. from KCRW, the show that connects you to the people and places of Southern California. Hey there, I'm Steve Chiotakis. Ever since 1946, if you've been looking for Jewish treats in the Fairfax district, you could follow the crowd to Diamond Bakery. It's part of people's Jewish cultural experience. Doug Weinstein runs the bakery. Many of the original recipes were carried from Europe by Holocaust survivors. Which is why I had the same visceral uh, reaction, like, can't close it. Like, I hate being the one to do it. That's right. If you didn't get over there last week, it's too late. The bakery is now closed for good. But in a Hanukkah miracle, the beloved recipes will live on. KCRW's Robin Estrin explains. When Diamond Bakery opened on Fairfax Avenue right after World War II, Jews in L.A. had mostly migrated to that area from Boyle Heights. The famous Canner's Deli, once a Boyle Heights mainstay, opened a block north just two years later. Jacob Lebo remembers when the Fairfax district was the Jewish heart of the city. Here on Fairfax, there used to be five Jewish bakeries. Some were kosher, some were not kosher. But the bottom line to me... Diamond Bakery is like a diamond. It's, it's their product is so good. And this was a very Jewish bakery with almost all Jewish bakers in the back. And it was, you know, kind of hard, intense labor. David Brand's dad worked at Diamond Bakery for about 40 years. He started at that bakery sweeping floors. The owners and the workers, like Brand's father, were Jewish immigrants and Holocaust survivors. Current owner Doug Weinstein saw those roots as part of the bakery's identity. You know, this is part of our, my way of keeping the memory of that catastrophe, you know, the Holocaust, in people, you know, alive. In 2019, the Jewish owner at the time was ready to close, and a group of employees, Latino bakers who had worked there for decades, took over the business. And then... I showed up in February of 20. 21 to get a cheese pocket and a rye bread. Weinstein was a longtime customer and a baker himself. And they, they recognized me and I asked how it was going and they said they were going to close and, and I had one of those oh no moments and we uh, made an offer and we took it over. But it wasn't a thriving business. The Fairfax district was changing. There are still synagogues and a Judaica store, Canner's Deli, of course. But L.A.'s Jewish center has now migrated west toward Pico Robertson. Fairfax is better known as the heart of L.A.'s streetwear scene. Weinstein was baffled. So were the newcomers. I see young people who are going to buy you know, $400 sneakers and $200 t-shirts and they walk in and they look around and they're not really sure where they are or what this place is because it, they don't see donuts. You know, the stuff they're looking at, they don't recognize. Ruglach, Babka, Hamantaschen, Hala. And so I ask them, first time here? Yes, well, you've just walked in to a bakery museum. We've been doing it for 76 years. You won't see this in too many other places. Let me give you a sample. Finally, business around the bakery just dried up. We're the last open business on our side of the street on this block. Bakery regulars started to pass on. And so uh, we just struggled to, to 
do enough business to sustain the retail. And then that along with, it's an 80-year-old building. You know, the plumbing is leaking, the electrical is old, the ovens need major repairs. You know, there's a lot At of At the end of November, Weinstein announced that Diamond Bakery would close. Stories poured in through social media. People introduced themselves as second or third generation, based on whether it was their parents or grandparents who first brought them to Diamond Bakery. The corn rye bread is... I've never had anything like it anywhere. Maybe because I was a kid, the cookies just seemed to permeate the air. She always liked the babka, the chocolate babka. She loved the rye with, um, with black seeds. She liked everything here. Annette Vanderland first came to Diamond Bakery with her mom almost 60 years ago. So it would be our, like, when she was very old and she was sick, she had congestive heart failure. So I'd get her a couple treats and we'd have a cup of coffee and it's just this real special memory. So, and I don't want to cry. <laughs> David Brand, whose dad spent his entire career at the bakery, says they also bonded over the food. I, I didn't have a a really great close relationship with my dad, sadly. I kind of missed that part. Brand says his dad, Abram, worked hard, often overnight. He didn't talk much about what he'd lived through in the concentration camps, but sometimes he'd come home early in the morning with a fresh bag of bread. Literally, it was steaming. And the two would sit together and eat over a cup of coffee. Those were the closest times that I had with dad. The bakery meant a lot. It was like a place where I could walk in the door and it always had felt like a bit of home. For 77 years, Diamond Bakery survived. Um, yeah, I think it was a miracle. And like the oil that burned for eight days instead of one, the Hanukkah story, the bakery's babka will last another day. The store on Fairfax has closed, but Weinstein has sold the original recipes to a wholesale bakery called Bread Los Angeles. They're taking on our bakers and uh, all the recipes and all the wholesale customers. So the wholesale distribution is going to continue and, and it'll grow. They're even taking Diamond Bakery's 75-year-old rye bread starter. That culture has been going all along, so we're going to keep that going. And uh, we're going to produce the corn rye and, and hopefully get it out there on a much larger scale so people don't have to travel so far to get it. Maybe the bread will keep inspiring memories and nurturing connections for another 77 years. From KCRW, Happy Hanukkah. I'm Robin Estrin. Uh, my name is Virginia, and I have been a KCRW listener for 12 years and a supporter for five. So you're here because you're a KCRW member, and this is a members-only event. We're trying to do more of that to thank our members and create these kind of community moments. So what would be your pitch to someone who listens a lot, they don't give, and they're missing out on all of this? How do you convince them? Okay, I tell you this. Uh, I came in alone. I came in wearing a onesie. It's pink. It has a bear head on it. Uh, within a couple minutes, 
I met a kindred spirit who is also named Virginia, who is also wearing a onesie. Uh, we did not know each other before tonight, and this is the kind of this is the kind of quality people you're going to find at KCRW functions. This Christmas, why not give a gift to KCRW? They do amazing programming. You know it improves your life. Everything is the best. Donate now. Wow, that was powerful. And think about it, community moments. Yeah, that's what we do here at KCRW and more of Greater L.A. to come. But first, think about all the things that you discover with KCRW. You're listening during the season of Giving Back, which is a wonderful time, as you just heard, to make a tax-deductible donation, Christmas, Hanukkah, the new year coming up. So thank you for spending your year and discovering with us and for your continued support of the radio station. If you're able to, Consider making an end-of-year donation. It's tax-deductible, and today only, with just a couple of days left, we're hoping you can help us unlock $40,000 in challenges for KCRW. That would be a huge thing for our end-of-year fundraising needs. Today and tomorrow only, when you make a tax-deductible gift of, say, $150, it becomes $300. It doubles dollar for dollar, thanks to KCRW champions, the Haynes family. So right now, go to the website, kcrw.com slash give and help us out, our season of giving back on KCRW. Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. More now with Greater LA from KCRW. I'm Steve Chitakis. In about eight minutes, art in quote-unquote human form. And our art insider takes us to the restroom. Kinda. But first, let's jam. Excuse me while I kiss the sky. Super music stars like the Grateful Dead, Led Zeppelin, and yeah, the late, great Jimi Hendrix were defining the music scene during the 1960s, but also central to that scene were all those psychedelic concert posters that marked the aesthetic of a generation with their vibrant colors and kaleidoscopic designs. David Edward Byrd was a pioneer of that artwork, called on by almost every great musical act of the era. And now, a book that compiles his art, Poster Child, takes a look at his journey with some highs and lows mixed in, and David's here to talk about it. Welcome, David. Oh, thank you very much. This book is beautiful, by the way, um, with all the art in it, and obviously um, so many memories of these posters, too. I want to talk about a long-form interview that you had in there as well, where you kind of tell us your life story besides the art. Well, um, it it was definitely Robert Von Gaben's uh, idea to make a book. And I said, what? And he said, sure. Um, So let's do it in a QA and a form. And uh, I said, okay. And then we spent about two and a half years on Zoom. Uh, and uh, we talked about everything from the beginning to now. You grew up in, in Miami Beach in the 1950s, and there was all that Art Deco around you. How much of an effect did that have on your work? Oh, God, it, it was a major influence, because I had just been 
swathed in deco my entire childhood. And then when I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon, I, you know, I wanted to, cont- I wanted to become a painter. So I studied painting and I was making big paintings, eight by 10 foot, six by six, six by five. And, uh, in acrylics and oils and, uh, you know, I wanted to be, uh, I wanted to be a, a famous painter, but that didn't actually work out. So I said, well, I'm not going to get out of the art business. I'm going to do what I can. I had, uh, some friends called me. They said, we're opening a venue for rock music and we we don't have anybody to do posters. And, you know, they knew me from art school. I said, sure, I, I'm sure I can do it. Well, I had never done a poster in my life and I had no idea what it was. Well, let, uh, me, let me ask you this because you're an artist, you lived on a commune and New York, um, went to Carnegie Mellon, and you wanted to do art. But this is art for commercial purposes, to get people to buy tickets to music acts. And I wonder if you or anyone else thought that that was kind of selling out. Yes, you're you're absolutely right. Uh, Many of my friends from art school use that term, sellout, right away because I was uh, uh, making art for money, God forbid. And uh, so there you have it. I I just was faking my way along and hoping something happened. I, I want to talk more about the very famous poster for the Jimi Hendrix experience. We started with Jimi. This is a lithograph, by the way, that's going for thousands of dollars online, speaking of sold art. Describe yes. that. I think our third show, uh, March 10th, uh, 1968, was Jimi Hendrix. And uh, I educated myself on his music, which was astounding. So I did a a poster completely, which is now kind of famous with all the red round dots in the hair. And uh, and uh, Hendrix loved that. And uh, he eventually, uh, shortly after that, invited me to come to his office, and we met and chatted. And I want to talk about the the psychedelic style that you embraced, um, and and that would, by the way, define a generation. uh, You know, the the Godspell poster, right? Or or your poster for Day of the Locust. I mean, these are images that are just linked to, to that time. Well, I, I always believe that, a, you know, a poster should be seen across the street. It should suck you in the face. But uh, at the time, I had no idea that there would be something you would want to collect. It just never even occurred to me because they were just affiche. They were just affixed to a wall. They were, at the end, pasted over and thrown away and... And so I thought of it as a very strange world where what you do was not saved. But actually, they were saved. And uh, I unfortunately, I gave them away like a drunken sailor because I wanted everybody to have a poster. 
What do you make of how posters are made these days? Not so much. I mean, the computers take care of a lot of it. You, you, you know, AI, like all this other technologically advanced stuff happening now, as opposed to when you were doing this way back when, 50, 60 years ago. Well, you know, my uh, I know all the guys that I worked with at Warner Brothers were very fearful. I mean, we had one little computer, and everything in those days was done by hand. And all my art had been done by hand. And I, I knew how to do that pretty well, not as well as some others, but pretty well. And uh, when I saw that the com- what the computer w- would do, uh, eventually we-, we ordered every artist in the uh, studio to have a computer. And a lot, a lot of them, they would come to me and say, I, I'm very worried that the computer will take my, uh, my art away from me. And I said, oh, no, think of it this way. One, a long time ago, some guy took a stick and glued animal hair to the stick. And uh, you got a brush. It was a new tool. Don't be afraid of new tools. They're going to change your life. And by the way, they did. David Edward Byrd's book, Poster Child, is a retrospective of his psychedelic art and biography. It's out now, by the way. David, thanks for coming on and talking with us. Congratulations on the book, and good luck to you, sir. Well, thank you very much. Moving on now with Greater L.A. from KCRW, I'm Steve Chiatakis. Tomorrow on the program, finding that snowy holiday spirit in Southern California where it just doesn't snow. But first, it's time to head over to Hollywood to check out some bathroom stalls. It's art, I assure you. A new exhibition titled Hugh Man, like human, is at Listen Gallery, where you'll find those stalls filled with the strange, surreal sculptures and photographs by artist Hugh Hayden, the Hugh in Hugh Man. KCRW's Art Insider, Lindsay Preston Zappas, went to check it out herself. She joins us now to talk about it. Hey, Lindsay. Hi, Steve. Let's talk about the way the the exhibition is set up over at Listen, because I've never seen anything quite like this before. (laughs) These are actual bathroom stalls. Yeah, you know, it's a really unique installation. Uh, You walk into the gallery and... You just see wall-to-wall gray bathroom stalls on all four walls of the room, like you're in an airport bathroom or some kind of institutional bathroom. And all the art is essentially hidden when you first walk in behind these stalls. And when I was at the gallery, I was the only one in, in the room. And so it was a very intimate experience of kind of opening each door, stepping inside, the door closes behind you, and you have this very one-on-one interaction with each object. All right, let's, let's talk about the artist. Who is Hugh Hayden, and, and how does this fit in into the body of work of his until up until now? 
Yeah, so he's a New York-based artist, and this is actually his first solo show in Los Angeles, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, And he's never quite done an installation of this type before, but the sculptures behind each of the doors definitely fit within his wider practice. Uh, He uses a lot of carved wood. I would say that's kind of his primary material, but he also uses other sculptural processes like bronze casting and and other uh, kind of sculptural processes to create his objects. And a really common motif for him is to add spikes or branches that sort of splay off of these familiar objects and make them inhospitable. Uh, so for instance, thinking of like a table and chairs that's covered with carved wooden spikes. So this creates a really ominous and visceral response uh, for us as viewers looking at the work. Yeah, you don't want to touch that, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, inhospitable, I guess that is the word. The, the, the sculptures displayed Lindsay in these stalls are in in some instances quite jarring I mean there's there's one like well I don't know how to describe there's a wooden uterus with a baby in it (laughs) on top of a tree trunk um there's another with this kind of unstable chair made up of, of as you mentioned the sharp branches what's it like experiencing these works in person in such an intimate space Yeah, I mean, the sculptures really range, like you said, in topics and forms. Um, Some are really jarring, and some of them almost crowd you out where you can't even enter the stall. You know, the sculpture really takes up the whole thing with these kind of protruding branches that don't let you in. And then others are very small, and you have to kind of really get up close to experience Uh, The works involve a range of things from interlocking skeletons to body casts where genitals have been replaced with weapons. Uh, Some of the stalls include, Steve, functioning urinals, which I was actually Mm. told that brave gallery goers are using in the gallery space, which is another idea there. But um, the work really ranges. And again, there's this kind of additive quality when you see one at a time. Um, There are some shows going back to the wooden baby in the uterus. There's some themes in the show about family. And I think these come from Hayden's perspective as a queer person. And here we have this anatomical model, almost like you'd see in a doctor's office. But instead of a pregnant belly, the uh, figure's belly and legs are, in fact, a tree trunk. So thinking about this idea of human and nature connection but also what it might mean for, for Hayden to kind of step into a family a, as a gay man. So again, these themes of kind of family, relationships, societal norms are in this show for sure. And the body. I mean, we're, we're seeing a lot of the body that, that, you know, made from natural things, natural materials, right? That's like part of his, that's, that's what this exhibit is about. Definitely. It's it really goes back to the body for him. That's a core theme. And again, we have a lot of wood in the show. So there's a lot to do with the body and nature. But Hayden also says that his the root of his work has to do with the American dream. So in that context, we can almost think about the body as this vulnerable vessel, you know, thinking about societal constructs that make up our country. Uh, you know, some of the work involves weaponry, as I said. I think there are themes of control, even police brutality that kind of 
make their way into the work. Uh, but what I really appreciate about his work and this exhibition is, is he, he really keeps it open to the viewer to kind of piece these themes together and make sense of this array of very different objects and what that might mean for you and your own body as you're kind of navigating these private spaces that you see the work in. All right. Hugh Hayden's Hugh Man. On view now at Listen Gallery through January 13th. Lindsay Preston Zappas, our art insider and, of course, editor-in-chief of Contemporary Art Review Los Angeles. Lindsay, thanks. Thanks, Steve. That's going to do it for us this evening. Coming up in mere moments today, explain. Wouldn't it be great if you could give your dog something that would help it live longer? A drug that aims to increase canine life expectancy. That's coming up on Today Explained. Is it the right thing to do and at what cost? Join us online anytime at kcrw.com slash GLA. How you doing? Share a story idea with us. Get the podcast, too. And while you're there, think about a contribution to KCRW, a place where you belong. Whether it be one of the dozens of programs or music shows or podcasts or weekly dives into food and culture, this is a place that belongs to you. And it's our season of giving back, a perfect time with a big challenge to double, double your contributions for the next couple of days. Our season of giving back, kcrw.com slash give. And thank you, thank you, thank you for your support of public radio. Juliana Mayo, Zoe Matthew, Kelsey Gante, Eddie Sun, Sonia Geis, Ray Guarna, Sue Margulies, Michael Stark, Phil Richards, Amy Ta, Carlos Ramirez, Michael Vogel, and Christian Bordal. All helped run the episode this evening. I'm Steve Chitakis. Thanks for that ear. Have a great night.